0: A CNN report cites that after America's 2016 presidential election, our collective stress metastasized into a full-on cultural disorder called American Thanksgiving anxiety. So what are we approaching now in the wake of the 2020 election and a pandemic? Many of us are anticipating a Thanksgiving meal at a dinner table surrounded by masked and politically polarized relatives. So there's no better time to learn from a Fund for Teachers fellow who pursued learning around creating communities of peace. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Cajun, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today we visit with Trina Thibodeau a middle school English teacher at New York City's Chinese-English dual language pre-K through eighth grade public school. After realizing the high level of stress and competition among her students who vie for coveted seats at one of the city's nine elite public high schools, Trina designed a fellowship to explore restorative justice practices among New Zealand's Maori culture and the Lakota Sioux to integrate equity and peacemaking practices within the school culture. We caught up with Trina in her classroom to talk about what she learned on her fellowship and what we can apply not only with students, but also with our larger communities. I'm going to start where I tend to begin with the fellows with whom I have the pleasure of speaking
1: on this podcast is what drew you to teaching? When I was younger um, and I loved reading and writing and I wanted to be a writer. And the thing that I always heard was, you should be a teacher. And so uh, growing up, the idea of being a teacher seemed to mean that that was, that I had not, it would mean that I had not been successful as a writer and I was so resistant to teaching. And then uh, in my 30s, I became a New York City teaching fellow. I'm, I'm cohort 16. Uh, so this was in 2008. And I am so glad that I did, I always like to quote a friend of mine who says, I write to discover, I read to feel connected, and I teach to empower. Those are my three modes for being able to feel in conversation with the world. And so you started teaching, did you start teaching literature or English or, because I believe you have a degree from Columbia, I do. I have, an MFA, I have an MFA from Columbia, um, so I w- I'm very interested in teaching writing in particular. I had no idea that I uh, would end up being a middle school teacher. When I went through my teaching fellows training, everyone wants to teach high school. No one wants to teach middle school. I and think it's, it's because no one wants to go back to middle school. It's that because- time. No one- It is so true. Our memories of middle school are so traumatizing that that most of us, I think, just really associate that with that age. But I think that middle school is really a special place because it is an age where kids have the most responsibility matched with the least amount of agency. That is a tough spot to be in. And it's really uh, 12, 13, and 14 when we as a society begin to withdraw a lot of the protectiveness that we give to small children, but they're not old enough for the compensations of that older kids get with, with greater freedom and more agency. So they're in this sort of stuck in between place where they don't know where they belong. So my um, Fun for Teachers project was really about fostering community, how to make kids feel like they belong. So let's talk about that a little bit because the avenue
0: down which you went to research community was very interesting and not typical run-of-the-mill ideas. So t- talk about how you crafted what you did because it's, it's
1: really fascinating. Thank you. So the Morningside Center for Teaching Social Responsibility was the first step in this journey. I had gone to their conference. They're wonderful. Um, I had gone to their conference and heard uh, Dr. Martin Brokenleg give the keynote address that year. And I was realigned. I It, it absolutely fired up my imagination with possibilities. Uh, he is an enrolled member of the Lakota Rosebud tribe and a psychologist. Uh, he has written the book, Reclaiming Youth at Risk. And he talks about the things that you need for a strong human being. And those things are mastery, you need to feel like you're good at something. Generosity, we need opportunities to give back. Spirituality, whatever that whatever that means for you and belonging. And there was such an intersection between that and things that I was reading about with restorative practices in schools in New Zealand. So I really wanted to go down that road and discover what are the schools in New Zealand doing and what are the ways in which they are making their First Nations students feel that their culture is valued.
0: And then I want to get back to what you did in New Zealand, but but I also want you to talk about
1: the second part of your fellowship.
0: Didn't you pursue some restorative practices with some of the
1: Lakota Sioux? Yes. So that was mostly through correspondence and sort of independent study. But a lot of the discoveries there were the ways in which they have discovered these wonderful practices for these four things you need to make a strong, healthy, happy human being. And the difficulty of living those practices in a culture um, were at a moment Uh, now more than ever, but it's sort of, I think, always been the case in our culture where those things are not the values that are being reflected back to kids from the people who are in power here. So I wanted to study that and see the, and look at the the contrast. I think that that is so interesting. And the results that you see, you can have kids that are given all of these tools for resilience, but they are so greatly challenged once they walk outside of the school.
0: Because there's no support
1: structure there to help them implement those those skills, I think that they I think that there are, but I think um, that it, it often ends up being very much who are the who are the the supportive adults that are in these kids' lives. in, in my experience of schools in New Zealand and community in New Zealand, was that there is a a much tighter mesh it's harder for the kids to slip through. There are more invested adults looking out for those kids.
0: So what did you find there? Was that one of the more surprising things that you found or one of the more aspirational things that there there was more of an adult network?
1: Um, It was a few things. One was spaciousness, emotional and physical spaciousness that I felt in New Zealand. Uh, It's a country the size of California with the same number of people as New York City so they their schools just have room they just there's a lot of space and kids are able to walk around freely go out into a really spacious corridor where there's couches and sit and work with a peer work with a teacher and so there was that tremendous sense of space you felt it you it was really palpable that you walked in that there was room there to be. The other thing is just that the social and emotional needs of both children and adults were so valued and so prioritized in very concrete ways. So the schools that I visited in New Zealand, I visited two schools in Christchurch and two schools in Wellington. So the South Island and the North Island both. And um, they have deans of pastoral care is what they're called. And they are there to support students in restorative practices, but also just to be an invested adult that is there for, for the kids, um, way, way beyond what we sort of do with guidance counselors here. And then the adults are also supported. And I think that that is a really vital piece. Uh, I came back and that was one of my big takeaways from the project is that those of us who are in caretaking jobs need caretaking ourselves. How does New Zealand do that? It, um, so some of it was, I went to a staff meeting, which was awesome. Um, they were so welcoming. And the school I visited had something called the Awesome Cup. And every week, someone who was on the staff would give the Awesome Cup, which might have like a trinket or a couple of cookies in it and a note to someone on the staff who had done something that was kind that week acknowledging that constant act of acknowledging the small things that might feel invisible, but that means so much. Um, And I I immediately had this this warm feeling from that. And that was something really important that I wanted to bring back to my school was that this act of acknowledging one another and being able to talk about feelings very freely was so important and they also they did a lot of things like they had teachers who would offer you know let's have like a running club or let's and that was built into their schedule so like they might have time when they were working, but what they were doing was going out into the yard and like running laps together. Um, And here at at my school, uh, I was able to offer some yoga classes and I really tried to give some opportunities for teachers to interact around something that's not necessarily what we think of as under the purview of our professional duties. Yeah, I think that that's important. Uh, I do want to say that I'm very grateful that Fun for Teachers exists. The experience of crafting this project allowed me to fully experience the hospitality of the people of New Zealand. A thing that I think is really wonderful that I wish there was more of here in New York is intervisitation between the schools. The principal of Kayapoi High School drove to the airport and picked me up and brought me to my Airbnb. That's sort of the spirit of the people there is they really take, they take the time. They take the time. And I think as educators, so much of what we feel is rushed. And I think that that's what contributes to the burnout is feeling very rushed all the time. And what I learned from my time in New Zealand is that, Honestly, if you talk to a kid, like you only have five minutes, it will take all day. If you act like you've got all day, it will take five minutes. So being able to breathe, slow down and send the message to the kid. I've got all the time in the world for you. I've got all the time in the world for you. This is not a rush. That was really transformational.
0: Trina referenced the realignment of her career after a presentation by psychologist, Dr. Martin Brokenleg. He is the author of Reclaiming Youth at Risk, Our Hope for the Future, and other publications on cultural healing and restoration, which you can find on his website, martinbrokenleg.com. The Morningside Center for Teaching Responsibility, where Trina encountered Dr. Brokenleg, also offers resources for creating societies that are just, peaceful, environmentally sustainable and truly democratic. Learn more about this work at MorningSideCenter.org. We're learning from Trina Thibodeau, Fund for Teachers Fellow and teacher at New York City's Shuangwen School. Trina is a New York Teaching Fellow. She holds a Master's of Fine Arts from Columbia University, is a published author and writer in residence at the Vermont Studio Center, and during the pandemic created the Facebook group TGI Cast, a weekly live reading series that also features podcast interviews with authors, poets, and artists. Talk a little bit about the school where you teach because it's pretty unique and I think in your description will explain why you might have chosen to pursue the fellowship that you did.
1: So, the school where I teach is a dual language, Mandarin, English, pre-K through eighth school. We're on the lower East side of Manhattan. The school is it's about fifteen years old, um, and it's gone through a lot of changes, a lot of controversies. The culture of the school is really, very interesting. We're 81% Asian. And for a long time, the school was sort of had like one driving mission, which was to get as many of our middle schoolers into a specialized high school seat here in New York City. Uh, Here in New York, we have, I think it's a 6% of the seats are in specialized high schools. The other 94% are in just your basic New York City high schools. It's it's very competitive. So we have this system that's set up where kids are really competing with one another, with other schools. And I feel like this can be really damaging to community. It can be really damaging to, you know, Dr. Brokenleg talks about this idea of mastery. And I have students who feel that if they don't get into Stuyvesant High School, that they fail. And they are, they're 13, 14 years old. And um, they're facing this sorting hat that is supposed to tell them whether or not they're going to be successful human beings. And it has become very clear to me that that is something I, I want to push back Against and I tell my students you are you are not your number you know you are not your um, GPA and and trying to work on changing the culture at my school around around that idea of placement. That's tricky too because it's not just
0: obviously the student to whom you're talking, but you're also addressing input that they're receiving from most likely their family and their culture, and the education environment in New York City, because those 6% are nationally known schools. And so one can tell these students, you're more than a number, but
1: that's not what they're hearing probably from anyone else. Exactly, exactly. And And then we get, that that sort of brings us back to this idea of like the Lakota versus the Maori, right? Where like one is seeing its values reflected back by the dominant culture around them and the other is not. And how do you deal with that discrepancy? So what did you do when you came back? I really felt like I needed to start first with the teachers at my school. And I went to administration with a plan to roll out social emotional learning for educators. Uh, And I really wanted to start there. Um, And we did we did exercises and activities that were things that I had taken away from going to New Zealand and and taking part in. um, You know, when I got to Kayapoi High School, the first thing that they did was they did a welcoming ceremony for me. And that having these rituals and the the sense of ceremony is so important. I I feel like right now, during this time of COVID, more than ever, we desperately need to have ceremonies, Uh, rituals. uh, For my class, it often looks like I ring a chime at the start of class and we take three breaths together. And it's usually a breath for gratitude. It's a breath for compassion. And it's a breath to think about the people who are not here with us. There's, we have, most of our students are full remote. Um, how do we make kids that are not even here still feel like part of our community, you know? And that we are one school, we are one city, we are one world and that the kids are a part of that. I leave here every day, very grateful for my job and very grateful for my students. And everything that I do is really driven by the desire to make them feel you belong here. No matter what you belong, you belong here. You're wanted. You're important. I see you. Once you do set that example and you do
0: work with teachers to be the role models, how does that trickle down to your students? Because you talked about wanting to establish restorative circles and restorative conferences.
1: What did that look like peer to peer for your students? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a both a small shift and it's a large shift it's both. And the cultural shift in my classroom following the projects, beginning to institute restorative practices in my classroom, a lot of that follows. There's, um, uh, there's there are books that are available that that give sort of scripts uh, you can follow for having, people usually think of like the restorative circle, but there are also like restorative chats. And I'd say that's mostly what it's been. Um, one of the, the key takeaways that I would tell someone if they just want to know something about restorative practices they can use in their life right now is um, assume best motive. And come from a look to come at a person from their strengths. So making sure that I have fixed in my mind, every student in my class has strengths. Everyone in my classroom, and this is on my door because it's a key part of my teaching philosophy. Everyone that I will ever meet knows something I don't. Every student in my class knows something that I don't. And what is that thing? And inviting them to bring that in, whether that's part of their home culture or whether it's just, you know, I've got a kid that's really into juggling, um, knowing what their strengths and their interests are and working from that place rather than from a place of what are their deficiencies or where are the places where I need to pull them up? What can I shine a spotlight on? And I feel like the kids pick up on those cues and they do see that that's, how we operate here in my classroom. And it makes it, I think it makes a difference to how they treat each other.
0: I can sense even on a Zoom call with fragmented Wi-Fi and unstable internet, I can sense a groundedness in you and a peace that is, it's not what I hear teachers expressing how they feel during this time. I see in the media, I see on social media, how frustrated and tired teachers are, how they're using five or 10 different devices to be able to teach virtually and to students in their classroom. I do not sense that from you. What is different about how you're managing your time right now and managing the space that you have around you and in you? I think
1: um, there's a few things. It's having gratitude be part of my life inside and outside of school. Um, so I always tell my kids things I'm grateful for, a community practice for us, especially when, when I was in remote, was we would do three good things, three areas of celebration. If you have a room full of people, adults or children on a Zoom call, and you ask everyone to put three things in the chat that they like in the world, in themselves, you'll see the smiles. You'll immediately see the smiles, you know, and, and it's it's that... Um, that genuine, not spiritual bypassing, not Forced, but just turning intention towards what are the things that make us happy, and we're able to feel that that sympathetic joy for one another. Uh, One of the things that I talked about with my students this week is this idea that we can borrow joy from one another. And I, you know, I showed them a a picture of my cousin's daughter from last year before the quarantine. She's she's uh, ten years old, and she's holding a sloth in this picture. And you know, the kids immediately were like, oh, and we talked about that feeling that you get when you see someone experiencing joy, uh, when you see someone being included, when you, with, the, the way that I feel when I witness an act of kindness is the same warm feeling that I get when I do an act of kindness myself. So I really call attention to that. And I think that my school is changing. We, we have new administration. We have new, we have new, we're under new leadership. We have a new principal who started with us last year. And one of the things that he started was calling attention to students who've done acts of kindness um, and making that be, giving that time and space to be important. Yeah, making that part of the conversation. And
0: valuing that as much as academics.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, valuing that. With your experience and your interests and certainly the fellowship learning that you had how would you encourage teachers, parents to insert peace during this chaotic
1: time? I think it really starts with ourselves. It, st- it starts with me. Um, it starts with being able to find the, that feeling of peace in myself. If I am feeling angry, and I do, I do. Um, I would love to say that I'm a ray of empathy at all times in my school. That is simply not the case. But if I take three deep breaths, then I can usually find someplace on my body that feels settled and calm. And I just focus on that, always focusing on what are my students' strengths, what are the strengths in my community, and looking for equanimity, which is so hard right now. It's the times that we live in do not encourage a feeling of equanimity. And something I heard this week that I I just absolutely love is trying to approach life and teaching and parenting and being a person right now in the United States, in the world, trying to approach it with a strong back and a soft front. So strong back, I know what my morals are. I know what my principles are. I know what I care about. I have my community. That's my strong back, but my soft front is being able to take it in, to feel it, to not be shut off, to always remember that hope is not a feeling. Hope is a discipline. It takes a lot of openness in the front to be able to continue to hope in the times we live in. We look forward to using this podcast
0: to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from almost 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org blog or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you Fund for Teachers fellow Trina Thibodeau for sharing her fellowship learning around peacemaking and building community. You can read Trina's published work on therumpus.net, vol1brooklyn.com, and follow her on Twitter at Trina Tibbs. That's T-R-E-E-N-A-T-H-I-B-S. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning and have a happy Thanksgiving.